So welcome everyone to our event today for trends that we're seeing in the DEIB space. And you all are going to get some fantastic value from both Angela and Latanya today. I'm going to give them space to introduce themselves here in a moment. But before I do that, I'm going to introduce myself. So my name is Raymond DeShield, but I do go by Recovery Ray. I wear a couple different hats in my professional life. So on one hand, I am the operations and strategy leader for Call for Culture, which you'll learn more about Call for Culture from our CEO here in a moment. But I'm also a CEO myself. I run an organization called Balance Period, which is a wellness and health equity firm. And so our mission is here to help create a world where generational wellness is accessible to everyone. And when we think about our wellness, one of those dimensions is our occupational wellness, which is why I'm super excited to be the moderator of this conversation and to contribute in any way that I can. Because when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, it has the ability to completely transform our quality of life in the workplace. But unfortunately, there are obstacles that we face in that space these days. And that's why today's conversation is happening. So I want to hand it over first to Angela for her to introduce herself. And then we'll hand it over to Latanya. Perfect. Hello, everyone. It's good to be here with you all today. As Ray mentioned, I'm Angela Howard, CEO of Call for Culture, and um, looking forward to chatting with Latanya. Uh, so I'll bounce it to you, Latanya, for your intro. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Latanya Wilkins. I'm the founder and CEO of Change Coaches, the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. I'm excited to be here today. I met Angela uh, probably about a, a couple of years ago, we've always said that we were going to do something together. So really excited to have this conversation. I think it'll be a nice uh, organic conversation that brings together or weaves together two really important uh, parts of DEIB, culture and leadership. And these are the two that are often forgotten. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you both for your introductions. I just want to let everyone know before we dive into our first topic of conversation that. It is okay to ask your questions. I have the chat pulled up on my end. So feel free to ask questions as you are hearing what is shared. Um, we will have some designated time at the end to answer questions, but we will also be answering some of those along the way as well. Okay, so feel free to drop your questions in the chat and we will be sure to address those. And without further ado, I wanna hand it over to Angela to talk about this first aspect of culture. So I'm gonna hand it over to you, Angela. What is that first trend that you noticed as it relates to culture and the impact that it has on our DEIB pursuits? Yeah, so, um, and Latanya, I, you know, I'm sure we're gonna kind of bounce and vibe with each other here because culture and leadership are so intertwined that we can't really talk about one without the other. And so I wanna start with, this lack of focus and strategy around DEIB. Uh, what, we what we tend to see with clients is, I call it the um, throwing spaghetti at the wall tactic, <laughs> which is like, let's just try all the things. Let's add all of the programs to see what sticks. And so I think just this, this myth that you have to add on to make DEIB operationalize. A lot of the work that we do within organizations is really around deconstructing, 
And so Tanya, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts on that from a leadership perspective? Because there's a lot of like mindset and mindset and behavioral shifts that need to happen. And that's not always about adding on. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think when you're talking about culture with the adding on, I, I wrote an article and I'll drop it in the chat uh, last month in the training industry in, a, in the magazine. And it was all about how to use coaching to create uh, DEIB structures and systems in the workplace. And one of the things I started with is um, in that article is what are you trying to do? Because again, it's it's okay if you're only trying to do a little, right? It, it's okay if you if you say, all I'm trying to do this year is to hire more technologists of color, or all I'm trying to do this year is to make my leadership team more diverse, or all I want to do this year is get some conversations started around managing people in a more human way. That's all right. And it's it's really just starting there. And as Angela said, I, I think where a lot of orgs struggle with is they're always trying to add on, right? They're always trying to, you know, if they just pick one of those, they're like, this isn't enough. You know, if we look at our colleagues that are bragging about this online, they're going to be looked at as better than us. So that's what I, that's similar to um, what I'm seeing is, yeah, this add-on effect where one or two goals is fine. And I'm a professional coach. And honestly, that's what we do. I mean, it's one or two goals over six months. If you, if your boss asks for more than that, then you're not going to be able to achieve your goals. Mm, yeah. And I think um, a lot of times, I think we forget that, you know, DE and IB is culture work. It's not like we have culture transformation over here and now we have a DE and I program over here. These things are intertwined and really we have to go back to the values of the organization. And so I would love to hear Latanya about this idea of behavior change because that's my second theme um, from a cultural perspective. It is really around the gap in commitment and commitment to change. A lot of times right. we see people like leaders say, oh, everyone else needs to change. So let's create this program so everyone else can change, but we're, we're good. The executive team is good. Um, so when it comes to coaching, I'm sure you encounter this a ton. I'm sure mm -hmm. I'm not the only one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really interesting because just um, today we were, we actually last week, uh, my team and I, we ran a workshop for a hundred healthcare leaders at the top of this organization. And um, the uh, team followed up, the, the HR team followed up and, and asked for more. They were like, you know, can we share this? How do we get this to, to our, our, the second level down? And actually, I was really excited that they asked for that because we, we took all the time for the senior leaders to come into this room. They're, they're reading everything. They're going through everything from the book to, to the workshop, coming back to that, to the learner guides. And now they're thinking about behavioral change, right? Um, then they're realizing this on a couple different levels. First off, for them to make behavioral change, it's going to be very difficult because of all the structures that they have to operate in with healthcare. And second, how do they talk to their staff about this? Like if they're struggling themselves, how are they going to talk to their staff about this? And so, um, yeah, so one of the things that that we're doing for them is we are doing some group coaching apply sessions so they could bring those, those to us without any judgment right? Um, that's the thing. It's like really, and that's one of the trends that I talk about is, you know, creating the psychological safety for growth. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because, and I was talking about this at a keynote yesterday, like a lot of times, um, you know, just many of you may not know this, but just sharing, uh, your, you know, any of your weaknesses or any of your mistakes with your team 
already creates psychological safety. And we have to create that safety for our leaders instead of calling them out, calling them in, so they can change. So they, it creates that behavioral change, that space to make that. So yeah, I mean, I think behavioral change takes a long time, number one, because there's lack of psychological safety. Uh, what I talk about sharing your slips, making mistakes. I think number two, there's like, if you are, and Angela, you mentioned this at the executive team level, it just doesn't get cascaded. And it's not because they don't want to, they just don't know how to. They're they're still digesting everything and the systems that they're operating in are, are not amenable to where they're trying to go. And so those are a couple of things just to remember, but yeah, behavioral change is really hard. And I'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about you know the structures and systems around leadership development. But Angela, I'd love to hear what you think about that, especially from a cultural perspective with the behavioral change and what some of those, what some of those barriers are. Yeah, yeah. I, I think um, you know, be I mean, all this work is mind shift and behavioral change. And and that gets manifested and translated into structures, policies, programs, how we operationalize this work. And so, yeah, 100%, we, we see when we're working with clients that there's a lot of unlearning to be done. And I'm actually working on a piece right now about how it, how, when we experience it with a client, it feels like a grieving process because we know that change kind of mirrors some of the stages of grief, which is just really interesting. And I don't think we should underestimate that because if you're changing as a person, if your values are shifting as an organization, you're in the process of letting go of what could be or what is. And that is an emo that's a psychological and an emotional process that I don't think we give enough credit to um, when we talk about this work. So we spend a lot of time creating that safety and that space. And also respectfully and and you know, uh, boldly challenging. Um, and, and that's a really, that's an art and a science. <laughs> to, to say it lightly, it's an art and a science at the same time and working through those shifts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, I love that with the, with the stages of grief and how it's, it's, it's really hard to let go. And it's, and that's okay. Again, it's like, we have to make that okay. Right. And that's, you know, it's with change management when it, when it fails and you're thinking about all the people that have a hard time, you know, even I'm just going to use technology, like, like switching to a new system. And you're like, well, I don't really care. I'm not going to even talk you through that. That doesn't work. Um, we have to acknowledge and validate that this is hard. This is hard to change. And so Angela, what did you have for the next one that you were thinking? It looks like um, more of the damaging archetypes. I love to talk about leadership archetypes. <laughs> Let's talk about that topic. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you know, there are these three archetypes that uh, at Call for Culture, we've been, uh, you know, because we use human-centered design when it comes to this work. And one of the tactics we use is really understanding, um, you know, for lack of better words, like avatars within organizations. There's, there's some archetypes and avatars that tend to pop up quite a bit when we're working with clients. Um, one of the archetypes, and there's three of them specifically that we're kind of studying in depth to understand, you know, how should we be approaching these people, communicating with them, learning about their, their fears, their needs, um, their perspective. Uh, and, the, and the one archetype is what we call the traditional HR gatekeeper. And so um, this is the HR person who, 
you know, and again, I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of uh, putting a stereotype to this, this profile, but it's this person who's maybe been in their role for 10 years, 20 years. They're a traditional HR person. They know HR process inside and out. They've built HR teams and they're really keen to be kind of that, that right hand to the CEO. And so, um, and they often hold on to work um, around, let's say, you know, uh, people, DE&I, they, they, they harness the work uh, and sometimes just want to take credit for it. When in reality, they should really be working themselves out of a role, which is very counter to the mindset that they have around, you know, I am the people person. I am the HR person. I am the keeper of all things HR strategy or people strategy versus how do we create more collaboration across the organization? How do we create sustainability within the organization with our leaders where HR is maybe setting strategy, facilitating and guiding, but the CEO and the leadership team are really taking the work and the ownership around the work. So that's one of the archetypes we see that becomes a derailer for some of this work. Uh, the other one is the um, DEIB leader superhero. So um, this is the person that the company hires, right? Because we've we've rubbed up our DEI efforts. We're hiring that chief DEI officer, that chief impact officer, and you know they come in with the cape, and everyone's like, "Oh, we're doing DEI now," and um, and oftentimes they are the ones that are again housing the DEI strategy. They're meant to be the heroes from a DEI perspective when again in reality we should really be building capability in order to sustain the work long term. And then the last archetype is what we call the well-intended CEO. This is the the person who maybe has read about DEI, they've read a book and you know they they've read Latanya's book, right? And they now want to do the work around DEI. Um and at the service it all sounds really really great but the commitment isn't there. So oftentimes we go into organizations and we, we do our assessment because we do have an assessment that we use as a, as, as a part of our work. And they're like, oh, I thought you were gonna like recommend training or something. <laughs> you know, it's like, they don't wanna do the hard work to actually get there. So they're well-intended, but the commitment isn't quite there to, to make, make the change or they don't wanna make the change in themselves. So those are kind of the three archetypes that we've been studying a bit more and how do we how do we shift their mindset or the mindset or of the organization around that archetype. So I know that was long-winded but um would love to hear Latani your thoughts and what you've seen when you've been working with these different leaders from a coaching perspective. Yeah, yeah, I, I let's let's stay on leadership archetypes for a second because I was actually a little bit around that gets me to my my second trend, and then we'll get to the chat. So if anybody has any questions or there's a, another topic you'd like to explore more, you could drop that in the chat, and then we'll go there. But um, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. I love the archetypes that you talk about because I think you could everybody could visualize. I I could see the cape right now, and it's it's the person that's really excited, and maybe they have like an LGBTQ plus, you know, like relative or child or, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm ready to do this. I'm the best ally and I'm going to put this cape on. And then they don't ask the groups what they need and they they just continue moving forward. And so, yeah, I, I could see that one. So a lot of my work, what I talk about is 
um, the dominant leadership standard. And some of you here have read my book, I know, and I, I have a whole chapter where I talk about um, the, the way that leadership has been constructed that no longer works for the workplace today. Again, the way that leadership has been constructed no longer works for the way our workplace is today. And that's what I call the dominant standard because a dominant population has created this leadership standard, right? I'm not saying that some of the things, some of the nuggets aren't good, but you know, how many of you are sick of seeing the same leadership books over and over recycled through your organization, teaching you how to do things, and you don't really even identify with that? So it's not even just that. It's not even, that's the tip of the iceberg where it's not even any diversity in that, in that thinking. I call those KPEs, knowledge, perspective, or experiences. There's no thinking around that. But there's also not a lot in there around you know, how we're treating each other. What are we valuing in leadership? You know, there's still like this dominant standard of competition over collaboration, decisiveness. You better hurry up. If you can't make a decision, you're weak. Or you need to talk more. You need to speak up more. And again, you might need to do those things, but there's different type of, there's different types of styles, right? And that just because that worked for the dominant doesn't mean that works for you. And that doesn't mean that, that doesn't mean that's how your team values should look. So that's my second trend. It's really around um, having structure around leadership development. And it's really, um, it, this is something that we focus on a lot because I find it very disappointing. You know, I've been doing leadership development for a long time that, you know, a lot of times when orgs call us, they will, some of them say, oh, well, we want to do a DEI training. And I'm like, we do leadership development. So if you want to do something and you want to talk about leadership and develop your leaders, this is what we do. Yeah, we have some stuff in there that, that might qualify as DEI, but this is actually how leaders need to lead today. There's gone are the days of let's do a whole core leadership program and we have one little inclusive leadership side over here. And that's going to be a special edition. No, we don't do any of that, right? And so it's having structures around that, right? And again, I'll go back to the healthcare leaders we were working with last week, the top 100. They... Um, Again, they they're think they're still thinking of this this way, and so the org has to shift because they're like, well, wait, like if I'm going to do this, like how can I be a courageous leader? How can I actually? This is all in the same bucket, and you got to start thinking about this. You got to start thinking this about this as you know something that's a collective plan, not something again that's a side dish. Like every day, you're going to be dealing with different generations. Every day, you're going to be dealing with people that are who are different from you. Every day you are going to have to look at, you know, your team and evaluate whether your practices are equitable. That is leadership, right? That is everyday leadership what you need to be doing. And so, yeah, that's what I mean around this the structures of leadership development. Again, this is something that's lacking, and I think it's a yeah. it's a lot of where the backlash is coming from. You know, I've even had leaders come to me and be like, "We want to hire your company because I feel like this is disguised." I'm like, what's disguise? It's not disguise. This is what leadership is. Because they'll say, well, you know, if I talk too, you know, if I'm too uh, direct about this stuff, we'll lose people. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you even trying to do? And it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier. But I'm seeing a lot of this. Again, it's it's getting derailed because we're not we're we're not really recognizing again the leader's pain point. And we're not we're also not making again. It's safe to be able to change. Safe to be able to to talk about the things that Angela talked about with the grieving process, safe to be able to, you know, be called into the discussion when you're really struggling, because again, the systems were not built this way. So Angela, what do you think of all, all that? And then maybe we could get to the chat. 
Oh, yeah. I'm just digesting everything you just said because I think it's so important. Um, I just came back from um, a, a client visit last night, actually, and we were talking about this idea that we've, you know, we've kind of like uh, cut off the bar uh, um, and really like accepted a really mediocre version of, of, of management, which we have this opportunity to lead, right? We, we, we promote technical managers because they're really great at their jobs without acknowledging the fact that actually when you step into a leadership position, you now have a responsibility within the organization. It's not just a way to improve yourself as a professional, but as a person. And I think sometimes we just really bucket, you know, we, we glorify technical managers um, and, and promote them into leadership positions without the perspective that people leadership is really hard. We call these things soft skills, but they're actually the hardest of all skills. And so one of the things that I talk to with a lot of my clients is the fact that we need to create paths for both career paths. We need to say, hey, leadership is a choice. We would love to develop you into leaders and, and have that collective leadership program within the organization. We have tools for you. You're a first time leader and you've chosen to be in this role and you feel that responsibility to people. Yes, we're gonna develop you into that. But if you don't want to, if you want to opt out and be a really fantastic individual contributor or technical project manager, there's a path for that too. There's a big fancy title and pay for that as well. But we really have to start to delineate between this idea of technical management and leadership because they're very different. And when you're in leadership positions, you can cause true harm. And I would love to, before we um, kind of bounce it back to you all, Ray, I would love to hear your perspective from a wellness perspective, because there's, you know, there's a lot that's coming out currently around the impact that leaders can have on mental health and the, the harm that can be done when it comes to leadership. So I'd love to hear from you on that, from a wellness perspective. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about the way that we lead it's heavily impacted by how we care for ourselves, right? And so we can talk to our teams or our people about various different things that we want to implement. But if we're not implementing them ourselves and truly modeling these behaviors and these changes that we want to see, then there's going to be some sort of dissonance there. The odds of adherence of these things for our, from our team, you know, will be lower. And so what I, you know, what literally drives the work that I do is helping individuals understand the impact and the influence that they have on the people around them and how you just focusing on developing yourself and enhancing your quality of life based on your mindset, based on the habits that you practice, right? The ripple effect that that has. And now you speaking and saying, hey, you all need to do X, Y, Z. You can show model these behaviors, tell your story around the transformation that you made in order to become the leader that you are. And that in and of itself becomes the catalyst for the change that you want to see in your team, in your department, in your organization. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that caring for yourself as a leader is, is pivotal. It's important. Um, not only does it impact how you lead, but it impacts who you show up as when you're leading. Um, because there's a whole lot of data to show 
the impact of not caring for yourself having on your cognitive function and your just ability to, to execute in general. So from a wellness perspective, I think focusing inward on yourself and understanding that the investment that you make into your wellness will ultimately be shown and demonstrated in your leadership style and your ability to impact the individuals that you do get an opportunity to lead. Yeah. And one of the things I wanted to, um, this is just, this has been on my mind quite a bit because I think Latani, you mentioned, you know, your, your average leader doesn't have like an OD or change theory background, right? They have a maybe business management, which by the way, I think we need to restructure that curriculum to make sure that this work is incorporated. I think that could be something that we could do proactively as a community, um, making sure that this, those capabilities and those competencies are built in. But, you know, I think about the boom of people who have entered this space of culture expert, DEI expert, and I, I really want to make it clear that like I see our work and Latana, let me know if you see this as the same, but we have kind of an ethical responsibility to make sure that what we're doing is as sustainable as possible. So when I see, um, you know, experts, maybe so-called experts who have kind of taken this opportunity to, you know, create content and get out there and position themselves as DEI experts, um, we need to be really careful about making sure that we're being clear about what we are actually going to produce for the organization and people's livelihoods. Um, because this is an, this is an ethical question, you know, something that I've talked to my team. I have a few members of my team here, Ray, Kristen, Jessica, we talk a lot about what are the things that must happen in order for us to work with a client. For example, uh, we will always ensure that the CEO is a not just a sponsor, but an active participant in what we call a core team. We create a core team within the organization. If that HR or CHRO or that person who is the, the champion of the work does not allow us to do that, we will not work with that client because we know that this is not going to go anywhere, right? Things like we just started creating a, um, uh, we don't know what we're gonna call it yet, but kind of a social contract that we create with the client to say, we need you all to do this work. We are guides, we are facilitators, but you all are the, are the embodiment of the work. And so these are just things that I think we really need to start being very real with ourselves from a, a practitioner perspective is what do we need to do to ensure that our work is sustainable, as sustainable as possible. Now, at the end of the day, if someone makes a decision that we're gonna stop doing this work, we can't change that. But I think there are some, ethical questions that we need to start digging deeper into. Yeah, Angela, that's, that's wonderful. I really, I love that. And I, I think uh, another thing that, that I'd add is that um, there's got to be, again, we, we throw the term psychological safety around. And I wrote, you know, I, I, I talk about this a lot in my book. I mean, I wrote a couple chapters about this concept because it's so misunderstood and it's really hard to achieve. And one of the things I see, like when you're talking about this team, right? The CEO has to be a part of it. What also has to happen is these team dynamics need to be defined and followed. Again, going back to structures and systems, because if if you, this team is going to get into a conflict. It, it just, it, it's a matter of time, especially around a topic like this. Like 
we all like to use different language. We all have, you know, we all have different knowledge. Some of us are deeper than others. So there's going to be a conflict. And if you don't have some sort of team process around mm -hmm. how you're going to navigate and uh, recover come from a conflict, it's all going to go out the window. Because what happens is the people that are going to speak up that are probably a little bit more junior and are not the, the senior folks on the team, they're going to be speaking up and fearing for their jobs. They're going to be speaking up and fearing that they're going to fall off a glass cliff, right? And if you don't show them that, you know, in other ways, it's not saying it. It's not saying you're safe here. That doesn't work. It's if you have this conflict and you and you come back and let's say you 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 end the meeting there because the conflict is getting really really tough. You come back. I'm glad we had these discussions. Let's continue setting what what our our group uh, values will be, our group agreements will be, our team agreements, and how are we going to navigate conflict? How did everybody feel about how that went? But you have to continue doing this. And I see again, this drops off. And Angela, as you talked about these teams, the CEO needs this when the CEO is a part of that team. That's when this is really important because people will not speak up a lot of the times if they're there. But if the CEO comes back and every time it's, oh yeah, that was great. Thank you. Yeah, that was that was hard, but that was great. This is the kind of discussion I want, but the positive reinforcement is so important. And I, I wanna bring our attention back to a question that was in the chat just a bit ago. And I'm, I'm gonna read it off here. Thanks, uh, Jessica G for this question. Have you ever seen an example of a gatekeeper protecting a leader from their own change process? the process of discovery and increased self-awareness. Tani, you want to go first? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just going back to the question and reading it. Um, why don't you go? Because this is an interesting, okay. this is very specific, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we, we, we do, um, I do have an example. Um, and, you know, this kind of goes back to the gatekeeper archetype. And I will just mention these, these profiles, these archetypes that we're talking about, nobody is doing this intentionally, right? I think there is a big part of how the organization has structured, how it's behaved in the past, the current culture that's in place that drives this type of behavior. So we are by no means pointing out individuals and saying, you know, they're wrong. They're working within the system that's been created. So um, we have an example of a client that we worked with um, where, you know, we had a, a CHRO chief of staff type of role that really tried to be the buffer for the emotional part of the work, right? So it was a lot of gatekeeping of like, hey, you know, that's too hard. Let, let me process, process that with them. And then you've got the game of telephone, right? Where, you know, somebody is... Um, you know, uh, you have a, a person in between the information and that becomes really messy and difficult. Uh, we struggled, you know, one of the things that we try to do at the very beginning is build trust with that founder, with that CEO, with that team lead. And that's really important because this work is grounded in trust. People are in vulnerable moments all the time. And so if you haven't built that trust, you're going to get the shutdown. So the fact that we had this buffer really damaged our ability to ensure that that CEO was processing that change in an intentional way. Again, thinking about it as a grieving process. And that person who was buffering didn't know about change theory, wasn't an expert in 
um, you know, the psychology of change, wasn't an expert in um, the grieving process. You know, we, we are, we have that expertise. So it was kind of like the blind leading the blind when it came to this work. And so we, we, you know, didn't have the best outcome, to be honest. And we're not pointing fingers, but, you know, the gatekeeping really does impact the way that we can make an impact within the organization. All right. So thank you all so much for joining us today. It was a phenomenal conversation. Hope you were able to take something of value from what we talked about today. I want to give both Angela and Latanya the space to share with you all how you can stay connected with the work that each of them are doing. So I'll hand it over to you, Angela. Let everyone know how they can tap in with Call for Culture. Yeah, thank you, Ray, for that uh, just moment before you all head to your next meeting. I hope you all have walked away with something today. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, under Angela R. Howard. You could also check out Call for Culture at callforculture.com. Tanya, what about you? Yeah, everyone, thank you for joining. I'm still coming back from my meditation, which was really nice. It's been a couple of very busy weeks. So, um, but uh, yeah, and connect with me on LinkedIn, Latanya Wilkins, or Change Coaches on LinkedIn, or ChangeCoaches.io. And thank you everyone for attending. I love how we closed this and just giving each other grace and kind of, I, I love the community piece of, of working through all of this together. So thank you. All right. Now I will also share where you can stay in touch with me. So Raymond Ashiel, or you can put in Recovery Ray on LinkedIn. I'll pop up there. And you can also find me on Instagram at recovery.ray. And then my organization balance period, you'll find it in the link on my bio in Instagram, but it's just at balance period on any social media platform that you are on. So thank you all once again for joining us today. As long as you registered, on LinkedIn, you will get a link to the replay. So feel free to share that with anyone that you feel like this would also add value to. Thank you all once again and enjoy the rest of your day.